This is Dr. Lynn McPherson, and welcome to Palliative Care Chat, the podcast series brought to you by the online Master of Science, PhD, and Graduate Certificate Program in Palliative Care at the University of Maryland. I am delighted to welcome you to our podcast series titled Founders, Leaders, and Futurists in Palliative Care, a series I have recorded with Connie Dolan to support coursework in the PhD in Palliative Care offered by the University of Maryland, Baltimore. Welcome everyone to our another one of our PhD palliative care podcasts. I'm Connie Dolan, one of your faculty at the University of Maryland, and I'm joined also by Dr. Lynn McPherson, who is the director of the Pain and Palliative Care Master's Program at the University of Maryland. And we are so thrilled today to have one of our colleagues, Dr. Lauren Conant. And Loring has been involved in healthcare and teaching medical care and hospice and palliative care for many years. And I think the wonderfulness about Loring's experience is his on the ground experience, getting involved with um, a movement, helping it percolate, um, helping along the way, thinking with education. Um, he was part of the faculty at Harvard Medical School. He also was on the Tufts Pain Master's Program faculty. Um, a hospice medical director for uh, hospice in Massachusetts, um, taught at the Harvard Center for Palliative Care, helped lead some initiatives that were in Europe in terms of thinking about palliative care. So that wide range of what we're expecting you as students to be thinking about, where are the opportunities that you may have on a day-to-day basis and where are you helping and collaborating with other people to really think um, palliative care in a broad sense and then also help forward the movement So, Dr. Conant, um, I guess I would like you to sort of give more of a rounded introduction of yourself um, so that people sort of know um, a little bit about you. um, And if you want, you can also tell us another fun fact that people may not know about you right away. Connie, treasured nurse colleague, and Lynn, treasured former student from decades ago at PSEP. Um, This opportunity to reflect with you led me back to a very basic moment when I graduated from med school from Tufts in 65. Our dean looked at us sternly and said, your best teaching aside from Nurse, uh, from patients are your nurse colleagues. And he used the word nurse colleague. That was back in 1965. I mean, that is stunning at that particular time. And by Jove, was he ever correct? When I was an intern, I managed a, well, I tried to manage a lovely um, woman in her mid 40s who was seriously encumbered by good pasture syndrome where she was literally bleeding out of her lungs. And I remember standing at her bedside and say, I'm sorry, there's just nothing more that I can do for you. Uh, and that haunted me for, for many years until uh, I had the good fortune of learning about somebody called Dame Cecily Saunders and Balfour Mount. Mm -hmm. And 
constellations seemed to come together uh, when in my in the late 1970s, uh, when I was uh, in a practice in Cambridge, Massachusetts, uh, I would fortunately, uh, I seemed to have a, a wonderful patient population where they were aging and they were developing uh, life-threatening illnesses. And, and they invited me to look more deeply about how I could offer more appropriate care. And in her stage left, Balfour Mount from the Royal Victoria uh, uh, Hospice in Montreal and, and, and quote, the hospice movement. And um, early on, I think in the late, uh, I, I think it was 79, I, I was one of an early cadre of physicians who were drawn over uh, to be taught uh, at the feet of Dame Cecily Saunders and Robert Twycross, Robert Twycross, who did the original research on, uh, and Len, this is appealed to you as a pharmacologist of how effective oral morphine was and doing blood levels uh, early on about how effective morphine was, you don't need heroin because I think heroin just scared the living daylights out of people. Uh, so he made it possible uh, for us to begin to use morphine in a, in a more scientifically based effect. Uh, uh, um, so here I was one week immersed at St. Teddy's at Oxford, being taught by the masters of, of the, the English were ahead of us then. So I stored that away and came back. And <laughs> I, I, it, it's so interesting. That was an era when I was very active for physicians for social responsibility. And, and, and here I was dealing with a a, a global end of end of the end of life issues with the nuclear with the nuclear freeze and the threat of of nuclear war and then dealing with with, with the hospice movement and uh, I had this wonderful moment when uh, I guess it was in the early eighties. Okay. I'm gonna focus on, I think a more manageable aspect of end of life care. Instead of dealing with a global nuclear issue, I then focused on, on, um, and, on, uh, on hospice. Joe Magno had me be part of a national committee. I think it was on professional development. I can't, can't remember, I don't have my files with me. Um, but I remember finally uh, being invited by a hospice of a newly developed hospice of Cambridge to be their medical director. And fortunately, I was in a work setting where my, uh, the boss was very supportive of my uh, taking uh, two sessions off a week to devote to uh, the hospice of Cambridge. And um, I'm very pleased that, uh, that he, he, here I was a fulfillment of what the Dean said to me in 1965. I was being educated by my nurse colleagues. Uh, when we had a team meeting, 
it was a oval table. The med, the doc did not sit at the head of the table. The nurse did. And the opportunity to have a multidiscipline approach uh, to trying to honor uh, uh, our patients and family needs uh, was, uh, was just very enlightening and encouraging. And, and I have to say, I made a distinct decision at that particular point that I wanted to have a balance of, yes, having my hospice work, but also I, I enjoyed my journal medical practice. Uh, and uh, I, I think having the opportunity to work with a multidiscipline team helped better inform how I cared for my general medical medical patients. Now I'm rabbiting on. I, I, I uh, you want to ask some more focused questions. We, we're brought up to date um, in the mid '80s. Oh, I have to say one other point with the Hospice of Cambridge we were able to uh, develop our first residential hospice in the Commonwealth of Massachusetts. And it was so interesting. Uh, I would go around with a nurse colleague and have neighborhood visits. And the, uh, the, the image of what would happen if a hospice was set up in their neighborhood, oh my God, uh, all the druggies from Harvard Square are gonna be you know, raiding the neighborhood and, and there'll be dead people being driven off in hearses. Uh, we don't want dead people in our neighborhood. So um, fast forward, these people ended up being just wonderful neighborhoods. They, they became uh, volunteers and it was just a matter of sitting down and breaking down their distorted images of, of, or misunderstanding. Talk about false news or, or uh, ideas about what, was, what, would, what would happen. Just by listening to them and talking with them, we brought them into the uh, ranks of being wonderful source of volunteers. Now they have to worry about a cannabis dispensary in their neighborhood, right? <laughs> Not only one, but holy smokes, my, our local wonderful grocery store is being turned into one. What, oh, what a metamorphosis. Pick up a, uh, some eggs and your cannabis. <laughs> <laughs> You know, I think, Lauren, what you talked about, I mean, is, is I know, you know, that you had been involved in that. I know there was a hospice demonstration project that was going on here as they were trying to figure out the hospice benefit. Um, you know, this part about just trying to get hospice um, understood. And then you're talking about, you know, the palliative care movement because, you know, hospice didn't necessarily translate that well. Um, and, and then this sort of innovation, um, and so for our students, I actually remember all of this part going on, the part about opening up a hospice house, which in, you know, that is all by state guidelines as to what that is categorized. In Massachusetts, it was in this ambiguous part of not necessarily being a skilled facility, not being a hospital, not, and so working through that was amazing. Um, but also thinking, you know, when you're going to move into neighborhoods, they're, they're embracing or not. And it, it was an amazing place 
place. And I think when you think about underserved patients who may not be able to take, be taken care of at home, who really don't want to be in a long-term care facility and it's not appropriate for them, particularly if they're younger age, um, or they might have you know, other issues, um, having that group sensibility is so important because I think if we look at St. Christopher's, you know, they were, uh, their rooms were double rooms. They weren't single rooms because Sicily really felt that, that um, you shouldn't go through this alone. And whether you were dying or not, having that companionship was so important. I think in America, we sort of tried to say, well, you have your own room and that's, important for family care. Although if you think about patients who may not have families anymore that support, there is something to be said for that. So I think it also opened up that whole room experience for that. Um, you know, I think the other thing, Dr. Conan, to think about is, you know, when you became a hospice medical director and then that role that you took on of being an educator for different professions, of having people spend time with you, um, helping them learn concepts, because you're talking about where you were saying, okay, we don't need to use heroin anymore for pain control. And then we were thinking about methadone because that was around before we had the designer drugs of long acting that many of us kind of learned. And now we're having to go back to it. You know, this whole sense of that role that you took on, um, whether it was intentional or not, because there weren't that many hospices around and what you were doing even in the neighborhood was creative. You know, you wanna talk a little bit about how that role evolved and what you kind of felt your mission was for that? Well, I, I should first say that I, um, I was an apostle of of the nurses who knew more about uh, uh, pain management um, than, than physicians. We, we were just not taught that at all. Uh, I, I think the opportunity to interact with medical students first on, on an elective basis and then um, getting, and from the medical students, they encouraged, I'm talking about Harvard Medical School, encouraged the school to develop a, a course where uh, there was formal attention to uh, uh, the, the principles of care that we were trying to introduce. Uh, and because this is sort of an investment in, in the future, it was very hard to, um, to bring along uh, early on the, all the docs out there. There was just such a worry about addiction and over, over medicating patients uh, that uh, yes, we would give, give rounds and, and try to do a one-on-one. -on -one. But I think I was drawn to working with, with medical students because, you know, it's delayed gratification, but we're looking at another generation where they would be in a more of a position of, of, um, of authority. I'm, one of the students who started this was Josh Hauser, who's now out in University of Chicago, I think. Is that not right? Yeah. So uh, I rest my case that, that um, he, and I think he's able to expand this. Um, 
Now I'm rabbiting on. Uh, uh, please, please refresh my memory. I, I'm getting on in my eight, eighth decade, so I tend to get excited and rabbit on about things that may not be off. No, honestly. I think you know this sense of that you you knew that you had to help teach some of the 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 next generation, so that maybe this could be incorporated as part of their regular care. That as we were at that point trying to move you know move the hospice concepts, that we would have hospices, but we also knew that we needed more people to be. Um, have just a general understanding. So I think, you know, you helped have people come and learn from you. But I think, you know, the other part is that you got involved with, um, you know, the course at the medical school in terms of the one that Dr. Hauser um, started. And then I think in terms of- the And Dr. Anne Hallward as well. And Anne Hallward, yeah, right? She was and it was, that was a fascinating course because I think it was, you know, student driven of um, working with patients with serious illness, having these conversations, learning that um, they actually wanted to engage in these conversations. But I think that you also- for, Excuse yeah. me for interrupting, but it's a very important model of that course. And that is part of the quote faculty were patients and patients' families themselves. Right. They, they were framed in, in that fashion. So again, the dean back in 1965, here are patients being teachers of, of, uh, of physicians. Sorry, and, you know, I, and no, no, and I think that that was really important. And then I think, you know, that you ended up then being involved again. I mean, I can remember um, us co-teaching at the Tufts um, master's program in pain, um, several lectures on that to kind of have the pain people really understand these hospice concepts. Um, and then you got involved with um, teaching through the um, uh, palliative care education uh, course at Harvard, but then you also were doing some work because you had colleagues in Germany. So I think this, I, I'm just wanting people to see this generative aspect that you kind of started just with patient care and kind of moved out to education locally, regionally, nationally, internationally. I, 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 one of the great moments of uh, that collaboration in, in Munich uh, there's, uh, there was this wonderful uh, young hospice medical director. Her name is Dr. Claudia Bausevine. And you could just see that she was a potential leader. Well, fast forward in a few years, she became a professor of palliative medicine in, in the University of Munich system. And um, and, and, and that was particularly significant in a very male dominated uh, uh, hierarchical uh, uh, academic setting. So- uh, Not that that exists anymore. No more. Whatsoever. <laughs> um, so, you know, I think, um, you know, when you think about, you know, your career and um, where you had the most effect, like what were some of the, really seminal moments for you in your hospice and palliative care career? Well, uh, I mean, obviously uh, on a very personal level, the, the privilege of, of being present to patients and patients' families uh, when they are undergoing a, a difficult journey, 
and and realizing that there is always something that that one can do for for that patient and the patient's family, uh, even uh, when there's just a lot of complicated things going on. So on a, a very personal level, that that um, that stays with me, particularly uh, uh, home home visits. I think um, the opportunity to uh, witness uh, uh, a, a a multidiscipline approach to problem solving. Um, I what stays with me also is the the students' interest uh, in in this. I uh, I've had the privilege of following one of the early Harvard medical students who. Um, uh, it was her first year at Harvard Medical School. Uh, she was part of our Living with Life-Threatening Illness course. And she was uh, assigned a, um, a pediatric case uh, because her mother had just died uh, about six months before and she wanted to focus more on the pediatric realm. So she um, took Nick who had advanced uh, neck cancer to, he's seven years old, to the MFA and, and they talked about mummies and that just was so exciting for, for the patient and, and an example of how creative that individual is in, um, in understanding what might be helpful to a patient. Fast forward, She's now uh, on, uh, on the faculty at, at the Dana-Farber and doing uh, research um, uh, at, uh, on an adult leukemia. Um, so uh, being, interacting with, with students over the years uh, is, is very fulfilling. Uh, I'm, um, I, I guess I, I, I'm, I have not had a, a, the privilege of being a teacher for, uh, gosh, now almost 10 years because I realized since I stopped seeing patients, I lost my authenticity uh, in, in, um, in interacting with, uh, with a, even a PSEPT. Uh, I thought that, uh, you know, th there's just so much you want to listen to somebody who is reminiscing in the past as I'm doing now. Um, so. Uh, I think you bring up this whole point about, you know, there's, there's a couple of themes that you've talked about. One is this part of clinical approach, right? And so we know that some of our students will be clinicians and that feels a comfort zone for them. But I think that you also offer this whole part about you know, if we're going to be in that realm, we're also educating and we have to be kind of being thoughtful and just in time education and using all the opportunities that we can. I think you're also speaking to this really important role that as leaders, and if they're going, you know, getting PhD, our students to you, you become leaders and you need to mentor others. And so that's part of that role in palliative care. But I think also, Lauren, what you have sort of intimated, but maybe haven't said directly is, you know, along the way, 
you were kind of unclear, you were clear of what was going on in the environment and stepped in in different ways to be involved, whether it was clinically, whether it was working kind of, I would say at a local uh, political level to get, you know, the hospice house approved and all of that to then sort of thinking about this longevity. So for our students, you know, who don't know what PCEP is, practical palliative care education development. Um, it's been around for around 20 years. And it, in the beginning, it was really taking people who were leaders and going to develop programs. Now it's kind of grown a little bit more for people who are wanting to do particular um, focused um, initiatives. And so I think, you know, your part about being involved in leadership, you know, as leaders, we help other leaders develop. So, you know, I can sort of see these discrete things that you have done over your career that you just kind of thought was part of your career and kind of took them on. And, and I think that, you know, that's the part of what we're trying to have our students understand that there may be different phases and that there's a lot besides clinical care that we get involved in um, that we don't even realize sometimes and sometimes we might feel like we don't quite have the expertise but then we have to learn about it and then we kind of get involved in that way um yeah and, and i think uh, given the current context of of what is happening uh in uh in advances in therapeutics um i i do remember that we used to say, I, I wish we would be able to uh, have uh, a referral early on in the uh, course, of, uh, in the terminal course of, of a patient, uh, rather than just one or two weeks before they're about to meet their maker. And um, so the late stage referrals, I think uh, is gonna be even more problematic um, uh, currently, uh, because let's face it, there's some remarkable advancements in, um, in, in, in therapeutics. Um, and, uh, and hospice, there, there has to be a, boy, talk about the challenge for this new cadre, a, a, a creative way of looking at how you, blend in more uh, therapeutics that, that may sustain the individual without encroaching on their quality of life. But the economics are just overwhelming. Mm -hmm. So boy, talk about uh, bringing together um, everybody from uh, the oncology family to the pharmaceutical company families as well as the clinicians uh, who are uh, caring for these patients. Um, my, my fantasy is, is that every oncology rotation, uh, uh, fellowship should have a required at least one to two months rotation through a palliative care team. Mm -hmm. and, uh, and I would think that that actually is for, um, for everybody. I mean, I think about you know, I, at the time, I didn't know how special it was, but when I, when my first iteration as an oncology clinical nurse specialist, it was required that I do a hospice rotation. And I think it was because of the people at the time were very forward thinking <clears throat> and, um, 
knew, particularly at that time, because of our treatments, that a lot of our patients were going to die. And so, of course, we should have a hospice rotation. But when I talk to least, you know, advanced practice nursing students, they don't have that because it's so focused on the therapeutics. And, um, and so I think that, you know, that's an interesting proposition. Loring, I wonder if you ever worried that <clears throat> we weren't going to get off the ground enough. Were there, did you ever have any worries about the hospice movement? No, uh, I, I, I really didn't because I, I knew it would take a long time, but boy, the, look at how rapidly it became a Medicare benefit. Mm -hmm. I mean, everybody across the aisle, I mean, even today, uh, <laughs> looking across the aisle where there's so much enmity on either side, I mean, this is a common denominator for everybody. So mm -hmm. that was clearly a common area of agreement. Yeah. And my, my frustration was, and I vividly remember our poor nurse coordinator being on the phone, trying to get, uh, we were, our small hospice program was dealing with 19 different insurance companies. Wow. And we're not that big. Right. And she was spending so much time on that bloody phone talking to people uh, who were really not equipped to understand exactly what we're doing. And you wouldn't have any continuity of care. And I, I, was, I was afraid I'd burst an aneurysm um, <laughs> over that. So we <clears throat> ended up looking at the cost benefit of spending so much time on the phone. Look, we'll try to raise money. If, if they don't approve of what we wanna do, <clears throat> uh, maybe we can raise money and pay for that. But you're, you're taking away patient time. I so resented having patient time being taken away by dealing with insurance companies. So Thanks. don't get me started on single payer system. Um, <laughs> <laughs> which which would greatly benefit hospice and palliative care profoundly. Yeah, and deal with the equity. I mean, the equity. The, the that's another issue that I'm really worried about mm -hmm. for future palliative care and hospice care. Uh, we there are so many uninsured people or underinsured, and we're we're not touching uh, a number of our. I mean. Black Lives Matter now, uh, this must be bubbling up in, in, in your discipline now. Yeah. I mean, I think, you know, the issue, I think, you know, you've brought up that, you know, the insurance part, how do we get that? What's the consistency insurance? So that's a whole policy level. Um, I think health equity, you know, that's a whole, I, I don't think we focused on that solely before. I think that's going to need to be a sole focus within palliative care um, to it's kind of think about that. Has to be, yeah. um, is there anything that you can say that sort of has surprised you along the way in terms of the development of palliative care that you did not expect or that um, you were going, hmm, I didn't see that coming? Um, maybe it's my citizen, but I was surprised that it did take a while, but palliative medicine became a subspecialty. Uh, I thought it would take a little longer, 
um, because it was always considered sort of soft medicine and and um, but I, I was surprised that the science uh, scientific basis to it finally got through to um, I, uh, to the I guess it's called the American Board of, of Medical Subspecial. I don't know what it yeah. was. Yeah. Um, but uh, that is. So, did you think that that was helpful overall? I mean, because I know that, you know, before that, in terms of the American Academy of Hospice and Palliative Medicine, you know, they had fellowships and they were <clears throat> letting people take the exam. And then once it got, um, became a specialty, then people, it was acquired that people had a fellowship. Was there anything about uh, that? that you... The reason I thought it was helpful, it was a further authentic authentication of mm. of this very important part of of healthcare. Mm. Um, so that you've you've mentioned you're a little, you're worried about health equity. You're still worried about insurers. You're worried a little bit, um, you know, about numbers. Are there other things that you're kind of worried about for the future? Oh Lord, yes. <laughs> I'm worried about the patient. Mm -hmm. I mean, the the so I I I uh, even though I'm quote, I hate the word retired, I guess I'm reconfigured, but I'm no longer, uh, it's so hard to give up my license. Uh -huh. And, um, uh, but I'm constantly getting phone calls and, and emails from um, not former patient, but friends who are just totally flummoxed about how you navigate our healthcare system. I, I actually don't think it's appropriate to call it a healthcare system. I think it's really a healthcare phenomenon. <laughs> and uh, there, there's such a, I mean, there's an institutional momentum that a patient gets caught into. And, um, and it, it depends on what region of the country it is. Um, good Lord. and and. and the horror tales that I get from Florida is somebody uh, uh, comes into a hospital who is uh, end of life and they end up doing all sorts of procedures and um, uh, don't get me going. But so there is that institutional momentum and the poor patient, um, you remember that Time Magazine um, cover back in the 80s, uh, who's in charge here? Uh, I guess it was General Haig was on the, on, the, on the Time magazine. And, you know, who was in charge of the poor patient's care? Mm -hmm. uh, it, it's medicine by cabinet. Um, I, I, I just worry about, and, and there, it's so mechanical now, at least my, my, what I hear from people, they, they don't, the, the, the human co connection with, with patients is just being severely threatened. So we need uh, the principles of palliative medicine um, very much so. So I hope you, I hope you have sociologists who are part of your of your uh, your multidiscipline team because boy we need them. Well, I think that you know you bring up you know there's there's a lot of this part and I think with palliative care we have been a high touch, um, high in person. Um, 
delivery. I think, you know, with COVID, we have rapidly had to translate to telehealth. Um, I think palliative care people have been afraid of it. And I think one of the things is we have to learn how to incorporate it. It can't be the be all, but I think when we think about excess, we have to be able to incorporate it to promote access, but then thinking about making sure that um, people who may not have the resources financially or regionally have you know, access to broadband or to smart devices and all that. So that's a whole thing. But I also think um, what you're speaking to is um, when we start developing these systems, we do need to think about the patient voice. We think about the family caregiver voice. And I, I would suggest that we also have to think about the community in which they come from and, and kind of push back from everything being at the hospital to getting people back into their community and, and kind of stopping them from having to kind of enter this setting in it, in, unless it's really necessary. So I think, you know, that's important. But when you think about people going into hospice and palliative care, what are some of the other things that you, you would be advising them to think about or to consider as they embark upon a career in hospice and palliative care? Um. Well, I, that's a, uh, so uh, Connie, at what point are, are we having the conversation with, with these individuals? So they're going to start listening to them um, as soon as they, they will have access to them as soon as they enter the program. So in the first semester, so this is the beginning part and they're starting to formulate their, their career and their path. Now, now who is they? Are, are, are the PhD students? Oh, PhD students. So let me let me tell you the learning outcomes of the PhD program. And certainly yep. a PhD is a research degree. That's indisputable. But I'm really greedy. I also want them to have a keen understanding of the birth and the development evolution of what and what the future holds for hospice and palliative care. I want them to be amazing leaders. I want them to be advocates for palliative care in the profession and in the community. I also want them to be amazing teachers. So I'm really greedy. I see these people working in academia. I see them being as the leader of a large palliative care center in an academic medical institution, maybe working for a research center, perhaps working for a granting foundation. So what Connie's trying to say is for these people who will be the leaders of hospice and palliative care for the next 20, 30, 40 years, what advice do you have for them? Well, um, the most generic advice is uh, make sure that uh, that there's always a human connection with with the uh, the the ultimate goal of their um, energy, which is is the patient, and and to always keep in uh, in their forebrain maybe uh, the. Uh, maybe they, they can each develop a reference point. Oh yeah, my grandmother or my grandfather. Uh, keep that as a sort of a template for how they would like uh, for an optimum outcome for a, a, a patient um, 
to be to be cared for. Yeah, uh, so I I I think uh, you know we. Uh, this is not a criticism, but this is just a logical um, uh, um, result of a process of an academic process. We get so excited about some of the details of of the of the economics or the organization that we lose the human context of what we're ultimately working with. When we spoke with Dr. Corliss, she made the point that we see the mounting death toll from COVID and we've almost become immune because the number is so large that we have yeah. to remember that every one of those people was somebody's family member, that you know people so love them and they love people. And it's so easy to lose sight of when you're looking at 600,000, for example. Yeah. Huge. Well, that, and I think for our students to remember, um, you know, we, we come into this role with a quote professional role, be it a clinician, be it an administrator, be it a policy person, but we also will be patients too. And, mm -hmm. and I think one of the things that I, um, I stretch myself to do is, you know, when I'm having health encounters to see what that experience is like as a patient. So for instance, um, you know, I'll be asked to participate in a study and I will do that and I'll be, okay, this is interesting for me to notice from a patient perspective. What did I like and what did I not like? Um, you know, how do people greet me? I'm, um, I'm not one of those people who likes to be called honey and deary mm -hmm. right upon that. I find that um, a little condescending um, until they've checked it out with me. Or, uh, you know, I'm in, um, you know, recently having to have an annual screening mammogram and man, I had the best tech. You know, she said, this is what's gonna happen. I'm gonna do this, here's the positions, let me know. But was so professional and excellent. And I walked out of it saying, that was a great experience, you know, cause even though I knew a lot being a clinician and I wrote my master's thesis on decision-making in breast cancer, knowing a lot about this, I thought, okay, I can see patients being good with that. But you walk into some places and um, from, I try to get people to think about the experience of people trying to make an appointment when they get, have to call five or six times, or, you know, now you have to like press zero to talk to somebody. I mean, Okay, then they, you know, are entering into the space, be it a clinic, be it somebody's going to come to their home, be in a long term care setting, you know, who greets them, how do they get told where to go, um, what happens when we walk into the room as a clinician to tell patients who we are, what we're going to do, um, you know, I was, I've, Lynn's heard me say this, you know, I've been working in the hospital, and I recently had two older patients who not only had dementia, but spoke another language. And so they couldn't use, we couldn't use an interpreter. They couldn't use the online because they couldn't even connect in their language. The interpreter saying, I have no idea. So now we've taken this person out of whatever um, environment they were comfortable with to the extent they could be because it wasn't their home in, anymore, brought them to a new one. We can't communicate them. We're doing all these things to them. And plus they're being interrupted all the time. I thought, oh my goodness, this is, this is just horrible. Um, and then their families couldn't come in and visit. And, and so from, you know, that just didn't not feel good. And so thinking about if it were me, my loved one, how would I be wanting to make a change? But then when people are discharged, um, you know, and Lauren, you might've experienced this where we're looking at a discharge and we're thinking this is set up to fail. And we as a palliative care person step in and then the team 
oh my goodness, they are so angry with us because like, how dare you? We had this set and like, you may have had this set, but I'm trying to look at, let's do the discharge once and have it succeed to the extent that it can and get the right fit. Um, and then the people get home and we haven't told them how to get scripts. We haven't told them that if they need opioids, CVS or Walgreens or Target only stock on Tuesdays and Thursdays. And this is a Wednesday and they're already out. So they don't get their meds until Sunday. I mean, Lynn knows much more about this. I mean, so it's just this part about how do we think about that experience and then think about it from what, if it were us, would we find it acceptable? Or if it was for a loved one, would we think it's okay? So I think, you know, you've kind of stepped to that human experience on very many different levels. Yeah, I, I think the, the tension that, that obviously exists uh, with the, um, uh, the students that who will be pursuing their their career in various these various realms is the tension between trying to work out a a system that will work, but how how do you craft it for the individual? I mean, the, the diversity of of individuals and contexts are such that we really we cannot lose sight of, of that ever. Uh, and um, I, uh, you mentioned um, uh, interpreters. Uh, I, I hope that your, the PhD program might uh, incorporate um, dealing with um, through a major hospital where they have a former a formal interpreter service, just have some time to talk with them and and how what their perception is of of dealing with people from different cultures. Yeah. Because I think that will open up some portals of of understanding that will help you craft a a a, a more well, I guess the word is sensitive or appropriate system to meet to meet their needs. Well, Dr. Corn, that today has been lovely. You've really brought a new dimension to our podcast of really thinking about this patient as an individual honoring who they are and um, just bringing this wealth. And so um, I just wanna thank you for all that you've done for patients and students and colleagues, um, myself included. Um, I are so grateful to have had you as a guide and a mentor. And so thank you for providing um, your wisdom to our students today. Thank you so much. Thank you for asking me. I'd like to thank our guest today and Connie Dolan for the continuing journey in our podcast series titled Founders, Leaders, and Futurists in Palliative Care. I'd also like to thank you for listening to the Palliative Care Chat Podcast. This is Dr. Lynn McPherson, and this presentation is copyright 2021 University of Maryland. For more information on our completely online Master of Science, PhD, and Graduate Certificate Program in Palliative Care, or for permission requests regarding this podcast, please visit graduate.umaryland.edu forward slash palliative. Thank you.